going to read from our passage now, and it is John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down beside them with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So I want to start our time today by asking a, um, basically just a dumb question, uh, and that is this. Have you ever had a day that just felt like information overload? And I say it's a dumb question because the answer is obviously yes, right? It doesn't matter where it's at, uh, whether, whether it's in school or work or life in general, having kids, whatever it might be, we have those days where it feels like we're just trying to drink water from a fire hose, right? That there's so much coming at us that actually more gets everywhere else than actually we're able to consume. It's really like six days crammed into one. And we walk away from those days thinking, man, why, why God did you let all of this happen all at once? This is just way too much. I don't think I learned a single thing. I don't know what you're trying to tell me or teach me or anything like that. Uh, could we have spaced this out just a little bit better? I say that and kind of draw that comparison because that's what we're dealing with here in these uh, 21 verses in John chapter 6. They've experienced that kind of a day. Uh, Here's a day where Jesus decides this is a perfect day to do two different miracles that are going to blow the disciples' minds, right? 
Uh, that it's not just one big miracle. It's, it's actually two of them going on. We, we see two different times in the same 24-hour period, Jesus breaks the laws of nature in, in some pretty spectacular ways. And that's what miracles really are, right? They're, they're the laws of nature, the things that we cling to, that we hold on to. They're, they're those things being broken. That's, that's what defines a miracle. And yet these two are, seem to be particularly memorable, and first, we, we read about how Jesus looks up. He, he sees this crowd of hungry people coming towards him. We're told, the text actually tells us that it numbers 5,000 men, which means it was probably somewhere actually between ten to 15,000 people in reality. And he says, they're hungry. We need to feed them. And so, with little more than enough to feed a small child, Jesus feeds these thousands of people. I mean, he doesn't just break the laws of nature. He, like, breaks the laws of just, like, simple mathematics, like addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Jesus is just like, yeah, that stuff doesn't matter. We're going to feed all these people. Don't worry about it. And the disciples' minds, they're just blown. They're trying to process how, how in the world did this happen? What in the world? And instead of taking a little bit of time and kind of talking to them about it, right, Jesus just goes on, and later that night, he decides to go for a stroll on the lake. Like, not a big deal. And, but it is a big deal, because if you've ever seen Monty Python, you know the only three things that float are wood, ducks, and really small rocks. And, but here's Jesus, and he's doing this. He's on top of water, and it makes absolutely no sense. What a day. It really actually makes me, I'm, I'm really tempted to, uh, in the near future, the next time I like come home and Hannah hands me the kids and she says, man, you will not believe the day I had. I'm really tempted to say, oh, really? Was it a kind of day where you like fed a few thousand people from a couple peanut butter sandwiches and then decided to take a walk on the water? Like, was it that kind of day? Because that would be a kind of, that would be a day, right? I think probably what you had go on today, pretty run in the mill for a mom with uh, two kids, right? I'm tempted to say it. I won't say it. Um, because I, I like living and I enjoy life. Um, but what a day. If, if it's me, let's space these things out, right? Let, let's, let's go slow here, Jesus. Like, why don't you feed a few thousand people from nothing? Let's then give us some time to process that. Let's have a few days for like recap, discussion, questions, all that kind of stuff. Make sure we're like firm on what's going on here and what you're doing and who you are. And then maybe like in a week or two, then you can walk on water and then we'll talk about that, right? But here Jesus decides to do these two amazing things in the same day. Two things that we probably otherwise wouldn't have put together. We would have looked at them as totally separate occurrences. And maybe that's the reason why he does them in the same day. Um, if you remember last week what Pastor Ed talked about and what we were looking at, in John chapter 5, Jesus starts doing something that's really important. That is, he starts defending himself. He says who he is, and he starts defending himself and saying, this is why I am who I say I am, that I am the Son of God. And at the same time that he is defending himself, he is also making a claim. And it's a claim that is awfully hard for us to hear. Jesus says, I, I am the Son of God. And so because of that, what that means is, I know what's best. That I created you, and so I know more about you than you even know about yourself. And that's hard for us to hear because why we, we like the idea of being able to identify ourselves the way we want to identify ourselves, right? We like being able to say, I see myself this way. And so that means that's the way that I am. And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. And that's difficult. 
But what's more, and what's probably even harder for us to accept and want to hear, is that Jesus says, not only is it about who I say you are, but it's also about what I say you do. And we really don't like people telling us that, and claiming that they have authority to tell us what we do. It's hard enough to hear that from our parents growing up. It's really hard to hear that from people that we just met. And yet here's Jesus doing that thing. And so I think it's almost like Jesus knows. He knows this is a situation where, where he's defending himself. He's making these pretty audacious claims. And he's like, okay, I get it. It's, it's one of those things where it's easy to say it. It's hard to show it. And so he says, let me show you why I am who I say I am and why that matters to you. Let me talk to you about my authority. And so he does these two. He feeds thousands of people. He walks on water in the midst of a storm. And what we see as we look at these two miracles, and we're going to look at them really side by side, realize that Jesus wants to talk to us about a few things, a few pretty important things, a few things that we place a lot of importance on that he says, it's actually not as important as you think it is. And one big thing that Jesus says, this, this is really what matters. The first thing that Jesus wants to talk to us about is our problems. If you look at these two uh, miracles, there are two different problems. And it's pretty interesting. There's hungry people, right? We're, we're told. Jesus looks up and there's a crowd. There's a lot of hungry people. And just put the numbers aside for a second. The problem is just simply they're hungry. It's not that there were a lot of people. It's that there were a lot of hungry people. Fast forward to that evening. What's the problem? There's a storm. The interesting thing about this, what I, what I think is going on here and, and what Jesus is trying to show us and why he picks these two miracles on the same day is he's saying, if you think of your problems like a spectrum, you have on the one side hunger and hunger is probably the most common problem. It is the one that is predictable. You know you're going to get hungry. Hunger is coming. Even while you're eating, you know, I'm going to be hungry again. We're going to have to solve this problem in just a few hours again. My wife, probably the times that she gets the most upset with me is when we are eating, particularly like lunch, and we're eating. We're in the midst of eating lunch, and I look at her and I say, so what's for dinner? <laughs> She's like, be happy with what you've got now. And I'm not because I know, I can predict it. This problem's going to rear its ugly head in like 15 minutes because I'm, I'm going to be hungry. The other, on the opposite end of the spectrum, the storm, right? It is the type of problem that while we know they happen, they are not predictable. They are unforeseen. They're irregular. And so Jesus is very subtly showing us with these two miracles. He says, these here are the spectrum, the extremes of the problems you can face in your life, the common and the uncommon, the planned for, the unplanned for. And he says, what we're going to talk about and what I'm going to show you in this message relates to and applies to every problem, every situation you're going to encounter in your life. He says, don't lose sight of that. He wants to talk to us about these things, about our problems, because we tend to, some of us even like to, define our life by our problems. That we may have actually a good life, and, and when we encounter those storms in our life, when they pop up, we're just like, they overwhelm us, and oh my goodness, I just, man, it's everything about who I am at the moment. 
That when we come into contact with people, when we're talking to people, they need to know the problems that I have in my life because the problems are what define me. They're what restrain me. They're, they're, they're what I can do right now. I can't go there right now because I've got kids. That's the problem in my life at the moment. Others of us, we have difficult lives. Lives just seem to be racked with problems. And so we actually get to a place where we think that having this, living in that place, it is the normal. And that's just what God has for us. And so we actually, we maybe even get a little bit too comfortable with the problems persisting in our lives. Jesus says, no matter where you're at in that, the thing that rings true, that stays true, is that we are people that tend to like to define our life by problems. He says the Bible, what the Bible tells us, what, what he is after and what he's showing us is, is very different. That we look at problems as an issue. We, we look at them as, as the obscurity. We look at them when they come across and we're like, okay, we got to get rid of this, get, get beyond this as quickly as possible. Why did this happen? How can we keep it from happening again? And scripture tells us and Jesus is showing us and these two miracles are pointing out so clearly, you need to expect problems in your life. It is expected. The Bible takes these situations as a given of living in this world. Doesn't act surprised at them at all. Notice just these two stories. No one is surprised. Jesus looks up, says people are hungry. Notice nobody's there like, whoa, how did that happen, right? Makes perfect sense that a bunch of people in the middle of the day would be hungry. Likewise, that evening in the boat, notice there is no record of the disciples looking at each other and saying, wait a second, how did we get here? There's no one looking around saying, well, if we had gone my way and we had done it the way I wanted to do it, we wouldn't have ended up here. We would have missed the storm completely. There's none of that going on. They take it as a given that the storm happens. That there are just times in our life, no matter what we do, no matter how right we think we're doing things, a storm will come up. That there's just things you cannot plan against, protect against. That is a fact of life. And if you think this is a normal way to live, it's not. That actually we think the opposite. If we do the right thing, if we believe the right thing, if we live our lives the right way, we can actually keep ourselves out of the storms, out of these problem areas. Just look at the story of Jonah. If you know that story, Jonah trying to run from God and he gets on a boat and he tries to sail to the end of the earth and God sends a storm to stop Jonah. And there in the seventh verse of that book, we find the sailors are casting lots trying to figure out whose fault it is that they're in a storm. There's an interesting uh, interaction between Jesus and his disciples just a few chapters from here in John. John chapter 9. We're told that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answers them, Well, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's a really common question for them to ask during that day because it's a common thought. That for somebody to have run into a situation like this, to come across an infirmity that would have put them in such a situation that would have possibly not just affected their life, but brought their life into question, just their very survival would have been thrown up in the air because of being blind. Somebody had to have done something wrong. 
And they say, so who sinned? And this might sound crazy to us. Like, who in the world asks this today, right? Like, who sees somebody with an infirmity and is just like, okay, let's find out who sinned, why'd they get here, and let's learn from this. And we may think to our ears, that sounds weird, and we may not say it out loud, but we still actually do this and think this way. We ask questions like, why are we in this situation? How did we get here? What went wrong? We look at people and them and the problems of their life, and we say, if they hadn't done whatever, it wouldn't have turned out that way for them. Now, that's not, I'm not trying to shirk personal responsibility and, say, and all that stuff, but what I am saying is, is you don't know that. But there are storms, there are situations, there are problems in our life that we come across. It has nothing to do with where we are, how faithfully we're walking, how much we know God. It is a fact of life. And that's Jesus' answer to his disciples here in John chapter 9. He says it's not that anybody sinned, but it's that so his life may glorify God. Jesus' response is that our lives are actually meant for something more grand and bigger than we could ever imagine. He says, what if the goal of your life and the way that you glorify God is not that your life is great all the time and people can look at your life and how perfect it is and they can say, wow, because of their God, they have this and so I want that God too. What if... You're able to accomplish what you were created for, and that is not just to know me, but to point others to me. And what if the best way that you can do that is through hardship, through trial, through the problems of your life? And if that can happen, if, if I can, God's saying, if I can work good in the midst of your suffering, if I can point people to me in you going through the hardest parts of your life, then isn't that what it's about? Well, the truth is for us, it's actually kind of a letdown. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but like, th- that's, that's a letdown. We don't like to hear that. Because for a lot of us, we came to God out of a crisis in our life. We had a problem, and we needed a solution. And we had, quite frankly, looked at other places for solutions. And so we come to God finally, and we're like, hey, if you could fix this, that would be great. And I'll make a deal with you. I'll barter with you. If you fix this, I will, I'll come. I'll follow you. Nowhere in Scripture does God give us a promise that coming to him and living for him will solve all of our problems here and now. The better promise that he gives us is they're not as important as we think they are. Jesus is showing us, he says, the priority you like to place in your life that you point to, that you think about, that you're worried about, that you're planning for, that you're afraid is going to happen, is that hunger will arise or the storm will come up. And he says, what if the better promise I have for you is those are not the biggest thing in your life, that those are not overwhelming, that I'm actually bigger than those things. And so he wants to talk to us about our problems, about the priority we place and put them in our life. But he also wants to talk to us about our resources. As you look at these two miracles again, we again get extremes. The first, with the feeding of the 5,000, they have absolutely no resources to solve this problem. A few loaves and some fish. 
I love the fact that Jesus looks at Philip because I love Philip's response, because I identify with it so much because it's snarky and it's smart-alecky, and that is me. Jesus looks at Philip and he says, hey, how are we going to feed these Philip? And Philip's like, heck if I know. He tells Jesus flat out, he says, it will take over eight months worth of wages to feed all of these people. To put it in modern day terms so we can get an idea of what Philip is saying and what lays in front of him. Philip says, it's going to cost $20,000 to feed all these people. You got that laying around, Jesus? Judas, check the money bag. I don't think we have that much. But we live in this constant dread, constant dread of being caught in a place where we don't have the resources to deal with the problem in front of us. And Jesus is talking to us. He says, if, if the problems in your life are priority number one, the resources to answer those problems are 1A. We see the other extreme that night where the disciples, they're caught in a storm. And you have to remember about the disciples, they're expert fishermen. These guys know how to boat. I think that's the way you say it. I don't know. I'm not a boat, boatsman, boater. I, I don't know. Um, how to sail. There we go. Okay. They had all the skills and all the resources they needed to push through the storm. They had actually probably been in worse storms than this one, actually, right? And yet, there they were. We're told that they're three to four miles out. In the, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and um, they were about halfway the distance that they were trying to cover. We don't get it here, but when you look at other Gospels, in this account and other Gospels, we get some time uh, information. And actually, when you piece it all together, they had been rowing at this point for nine hours. Three to four miles should have taken expert fishermen an hour to cover. They had been rowing in the midst of the storm for nine hours. They had everything, every resource they seemed to need, and yet it wasn't enough. And this gets to the really hard question. That what if I, even with everything I've accumulated, all the skills I've built up, everything I've amassed, the resources to answer the problems in my life, what if I can't handle the next problem? What if I don't have the tools that are needed? I, um, my dad is not a handyman. Um, he's not that skilled in, in that area of life. And yet, like most guys that are not skilled in that area of life, every now and then they get the idea that they're pretty skilled in that area of life. And so my dad has, um, there's somewhere floating out in space somewhere, this unfinished entertainment uh, television cabinet uh, that he was building for my mom for Mother's Day back when I was in middle school that's always been half done. And uh, I can remember uh, working on it and trying to help him with it. And... Um, Watching, like, this is so old, it was made for a tube TV. That's how long ago he started on this thing. And uh, I can remember working with him and not being a particularly skilled handyman. He didn't have a lot of the tools he needed to do the job that he was trying to do. And I would watch him mutter about that and everything. And, and he'd finally get to a place where he would realize, okay, I just need to break down and go get this one tool I needed. And so he'd go get it and he'd come back and he'd do the job. And my dad would look at me and he'd go, Having the right tools makes all the difference. I was like, and some skills. But the right tools, yeah. <laughs> but it's true. The right tools do make all the difference, right? But we, we live in this constant fear of what if I don't have what it takes? That we can actually spend our entire lives conquering wave after wave, but there is always that nagging question in the back of our mind that 
we might not make it over the next wave. Yeah, I know it's the same type of thing. It's the same type of problem. But what if the next one's too big? What, what if I'm just too tired? I think that the Olympics are like one of the greatest uh, sporting events to watch. The Summer Olympics, who cares about the Winter Olympics? Um, um, that's right, I said it. Um, the, yeah, um, the, uh, and the reason is, one of the reasons is you see these people who have like set their lives for this goal and they've accomplished it. And it's so great because there's so many people that are just happy to be there. That was the goal for them, just be there. And so they compete and they lose and they have smiles on their face. On the flip side of that, probably the most heartbreaking thing to ever watch, if you've ever done this, is to watch the Olympic trials. Because it's the same type of people. It's the same type of people that have put all of their time, their money, their energy, all the resources they have their entire life devoted to this one idea of getting to the Olympics. And they're right there. It's so close they can taste it. And yet they fail. That they actually fail to conquer something that they've conquered before. That is heartbreaking. And it's also one of the greatest fears that we have in the back of our minds. And it's one of the unhealthy things that can fuel us and push us. And we say, we have to amass. I, I need to get more resources. I need to develop my skills better. I, 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 need, I need this stuff so that when the problem arises, when that wave comes, I have what it takes to get over it. And yet the fear is always that there will be a problem that we don't have enough for, and it's bigger than us, and it swallows us up. And that's why this is so awesome. That's why this is so good, because Jesus is telling us, he's showing us, he says, I can work, I can actually overcome regardless of the resources you have, regardless of what you bring to the table. That I'm this guy that goes beyond not just what you bring to the table, but what's out there, the things that are bigger than you, that I'm actually bigger than that. Jesus comes to the disciples. They're in the midst of the storm. They've been rowing for hours. They're tired. They're at the end of themselves, and they look out. They see Jesus walking to them, and how does he introduce himself? He says, it's I. It's me. Don't be afraid. Every commentary I looked at, they said the phrasing that is used here, the words, it's very much an intentional throwback all the way to Exodus 3. And there in Exodus 3, Moses is there in front of the burning bush. God has revealed himself to him. God says, Moses, you're going to do this amazing thing. You're going to go and you're going to set Israel free from Egypt. Crazy, right? There's a problem. You don't have the resources, but I'm going to do it. Moses looks at him and says, okay. But I need to know who's sending me. Like, who do I tell sent me? I need to know who you are. And what does God say? God says, I am. God so brilliantly says, there is nothing in your world that perfectly encapsulates me that you can relate me to. I just am. I'm bigger than it. I'm beyond it. I am. And so Jesus shows up in the midst, in the midst of a storm, a problem that is overwhelming the disciples, something that they don't know how to combat and they can't get through themselves. And he says, hey guys, I'm bigger than this. 
And I don't know where you're at today, but if you're in a place like that, if you feel like it may be the thing that every day you're struggling with and it's just hard to make ends meet, or you're in the midst of a storm right now that you did not see coming and it feels like it is overwhelming you, Jesus is saying to you, I am bigger than this. I know you want to look at and I know you want to talk about and I know you want to think about your problem and what you're able to do to answer your problem, but I'm telling you right now, those are secondary. They actually don't matter. And it's not because it doesn't matter to him. See, that's the amazing thing is we see here that Jesus cares about our problems. Jesus looks up and he sees that the people are hungry and he says, we need to fix this. Jesus is in the midst of the storm. Jesus, we have a God, a Savior that bleeds with us over the things we bleed over. But he also says, I'm bigger than all of it. You don't need to take stock of how big this problem is. You don't need to worry about how you're going to fix it. I've got this. Because the amazing thing, too, is not only does he say, I am bigger, he also says, I care. He tells the disciples, he says, it's me. You guys know me. I know you. So let me in. I mean, if you don't feel like this is good news, that this is liberating, that you don't have to constantly, constantly be walking around in paranoia all day long about what might happen and how, if it does, you'll fix it or answer it or deal with it because of who Jesus is and the fact that he is over you and he's bigger than that, I don't know what good news is to you. That is great news. So Jesus talks to us about our problems. He says they don't matter as much as you think they do. He talks to us about our resources. He says, hey, it's okay. Even if you've got nothing, I can handle it. What he does really want to talk to us about, though, is our response. For all the similarities that these two miracles have, the one major glaring difference is the response to the miracle. If you notice there the first response with that first miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, we get this kind of weird image that you read and you're just like, okay, that's strange. There in verse 15, we're told that the people look at Jesus and they're like, okay, this guy's a prophet. And so then we're told that knowing that they wanted to make him king by force, that sounds strange, Jesus fled. He slipped away. But it does make sense what they were after, what they were thinking about in their political situation. You see, Israel was not free. They had been occupied by a foreign power. Rome had not enslaved them, but was occupying them. And they saw this. Everything they talked about was at the forefront of their mind with everything. This was their problem. And they had spent years, decades, generations trying to build up the resources to get over it. And they hadn't been able to. They had, they had had revolts. All these things hadn't happened. And so here they're at this point where they're feeling as though hope is lost. This is never going to end. We have this major problem, no resources. And here's a guy that just showed us he can overcome all of that. This is great. Let's grab him and he can fix the problem for us. And we so often do this with God, don't we? Where when we come into contact with him and he shows us who he is, we're like a little kid who can't get what they want. And, and, and so we grab his hand and we pull him along and we say, here, here, come here, come here. I need you to fix this thing for me. Yeah, it's awesome that you say all this stuff about you and we're supposed to do these things and love people this way. But if you could just come and fix my problems real quick, then we can get onto the stuff you want to get onto. It's a totally different reaction that evening with the disciples. Disciples are in the midst of a storm. Jesus shows up. He says, hey, it's me. 
What's the reaction? They, they, they don't yell out, hey, Jesus, have you noticed we're in the middle of a storm? Fix this for us. Calm it. No, they just get them into the boat. Somewhere along the line, because of knowing Christ and walking with him, their response was different because they knew no matter what the situation, no matter what they were facing, Jesus is always the priority. And what's amazing, too, is that we think so often if we let Jesus in, it's just going to calm everything. It'll go to the way it's supposed to be. We're never told here in John that the storm stops. It says he gets in the boat, and instantly the boat was where they were going. Jesus may not remove the problems from your life. The storm may persist, but he's going to get you to where you need to go. He's showing us that as much as we think our problems define us, our problems limit what God can do in our life, as much as we think what we bring to the table factors into that as well, Jesus wants us to understand that the only thing that will limit his work in our life, what he can do, and how he will use us to point to him, is our response to him. Are we more worried about him fixing the priorities in our life, or are we willing to make him the priority? We just think if we can bring Jesus to all of our problems, or if we can bring him to our marriage, if we can bring him to our, our, our kids and parenting, then he can fix all those things because he's God. But what Jesus is trying to get across to us is what is more important. It's not him fixing our problem, but actually that we invite him into the boat with no conditions. No promise of change in our circumstances or a buildup of our resources, just the promise of him because he is what matters. That actually we believe that when he says he's the authority and he loves us, that we believe it and we grab onto it and we cling to it dearly whether he does what we think he should or not. And what Jesus is actually showing us is that if he becomes the priority in our life and we are willing to put him there, that he then actually makes us, without us even realizing it a lot of times, a better spouse, a better parent. That maybe instead of him changing our situation and that being the promise he gives us that he gives us a better promise that in spite of the disappointing and hard parts of our life he will change us and we will be better because of it we will be better because of him and that because of those difficulties we will show his glory even better that instead of him moving his your boss that you just can't stand on the greener pastures i mean we all have those right those kind of bosses right I don't. Um, that would be weird. <laughs> that maybe instead of that, he wants to make you a better employee. To love your boss better. To actually pray for the person that every day you go to work and you don't want to go to work because of that person. Maybe that's what he's after. That he wants that kind of a response from us. But what he's also showing us and what's important for us to grab onto is that our response is dictated by our priority, what we put first and foremost in our lives. We like to think, we tend to be people that like to think we're going to respond in a certain way, that we, we look at life and we look at different situations and problems and we say, if that were to ever happen to me, I would respond this way. And I don't really need to think about it a whole lot. I don't need to plan for it because like when the time comes, I'm going to do that. I'm going to respond like this. 
And I can tell you from personal experience, it doesn't work out that way. And I say that because I know. I used to think, I liked to think, that I was a person that was cool and calm under pressure. That I could work in any environment, doesn't matter, I'm not going to lose my cool. I'm pretty calm, clear thinking, no matter what the situation and I, I used to think that, I think mainly because I, I was relating it to school and writing papers, and I was always really good under a deadline writing papers. I could churn one out, no problem. But then two Thanksgivings ago, I almost burnt my house down, and I realized that's not the case. Um, it, was, uh, it was Thanksgiving two years ago, and uh, the morning started off great. We like to, in our house, take holidays slow and just kind of relaxed. And so um, we, we had begun the morning, and I went downstairs uh, to, uh, to check on. I was smoking our Thanksgiving turkey in the smoker outside. And I went down to check, and the thermometer was saying that the turkey was ready. And I was like, awesome. It got done faster than I thought it would. And uh, this will be great. I don't have to worry about that whole, like, is it going to be done by the time you're eating and everything like that. And so uh, with, uh, I, I, I had a hoodie on and my pajama pants and slippers. It was like, you know, I'm going to check on it, pull it out. We'll let it rest. It's going to be great. And so uh, Hannah was upstairs uh, with our kids. Uh, they were eating breakfast and watching cartoons. And uh, we live with my in-laws. And so uh, my mother-in-law was downstairs in her bedroom. And I went out and uh, opened up the door. And there was the turkey. And it looked amazing. So good. And um, I happened to look down, though. And in the back left corner of the smoker was a flame. And I thought, OK, not a big deal. But as I'm thinking about that, uh, the flame got bigger. And I was like, oh, well, I need to handle this now. And so I, I turned around and went inside, and I'm thinking, you know, again, you know, I, I handle situations like this really well, so be cool, be calm, you know, don't panic. And so I, I, I walked inside and um, just, you know, letting everybody kind of know what was going on, but hey, don't freak out, it's cool, it's under control. I just kind of yelled out, hey, Hannah, Felicia, fire. No big deal. And, uh, and so I was kind of like looking around to see like what, you know, I could get to like, you know, put this thing out. It's, it's not a big deal still. And uh, Hannah opens up the door from upstairs and she yells down, what? And I turned around and uh, the fire had gotten considerably larger and uh, the entire smoker was engulfed in flame at this point. And so I yelled out with a little bit more panic, but still, still cool, Fire. So my mother-in-law rushes out from her uh, bedroom, and uh, Hannah comes down the stairs, and it, it's getting big. And so one of them, I don't know which one, yelled, get flour, uh, because the idea was throw flour on it and extinguish it. And we have a big thing of flour in our pantry. So I go in, uh, I go in the pantry, grab the flour, and me and Hannah rush out there. Uh, I throw the flour on this flame that is getting bigger, and it does not put it out. And it probably didn't put it out, because I got like half the container on me instead of the fire. But... So the flame, the flame at this point, uh, we had set up the smoker uh, under, on our patio, but it was under the second story deck that is attached to the place that my kids were eating uh, cereal and watching cartoons at the moment. And uh, by this point, the flames are about two or three feet from the deck and it's going to catch on fire. So Hannah says, hey, push it out into the yard. And thankfully, we had the smoker set up on a four-wheel dolly uh, to just get it back and forth from the garage easily. So there I am with flames about 10 feet high and um, just in pajama pants and slippers and everything. And I'm like pushing this thing out with my foot, trying to not get burnt. And that's when it hit me that my worst fear is being realized. I'm going to burn down my house on Thanksgiving Day. And I'm going to have to call the fire department and tell them I burnt down my house smoking my Thanksgiving turkey. 
And the whole time that I'm like just inches away from these flames, I'm thinking, I don't want to call the fire department. I don't want to call the fire department. I don't want to call the fire department because I can just see my family like all in our pajamas, standing outside, our house in flames, the neighborhood there, taking videos, all that sort of thing. Firemen laughing about it like, here's this idiot. There's another one. And uh, the funny thing is, is I told Anna, I said, while this was all going on, that was my thought. I was just thinking, I don't want to have to call the fire department. I don't want to have to call the fire department. And she goes, that's funny because I was thinking the whole time, I really hope the house where my kids are currently eating and watching cartoons and have no idea any of this is going on. I hope that house doesn't catch on fire and my kids die. And that's when I knew that my wife is a better parent than I am. <laughs> Um, that's her Mother's Day gift, by the way, uh, admitting that she's a better parent than me. Because in this entire thing, I never once thought about my kids. I was thinking about me and my public image of not having burned down my, my house. And so, um, and so that's when the panic set in. I'm just like, oh my goodness. And so I panic and I think, okay, the flour didn't work. I need water. And I don't know why, but I thought the kitchen, later Hannah's like, how in the world was that going to work? But I think there's a faucet in there. There's water. We'll get it out here somehow. So I rush in, I, I rush to, to, go to, the, um, to go to the kitchen and I get to the door and the door is locked. I'm like, what in the world? And there's my mother-in-law standing there just blank faced. And apparently she had locked the door. Because you know the first rule of fire safety is when the fire's outside, lock the door because that'll keep the fire out. And my mother-in-law's just standing there blank-faced, and, and I'm like, I, I, I have to yell at her, like, lock, unlock the door, unlock the door, unlock the door. And finally she, she like snaps down, and she's like, oh, okay. And so she unlocks the door, and then a full rush at this point, I get in there, and our floor is laminate. And so with slippers that are covered in flour, I hit our floor, and my feet came out from under me, and I smacked so hard. I hit the floor so hard that I was limping still by Christmas. Um, and I'm pretty sure I, I had a concussion. And so there's my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law is standing over me and like has totally forgotten about the fire. Although I think she closed the door and locked it again because, you know, fire safety. And she's standing over me. She's saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm just at this point, like foggy. I'm like, you know what? Just let me stay here and die. And I won't have to call the fire department at that point. And, uh, and that's when I heard it, the sound of rushing water. And there was, I turned and there was my wife standing over the smoker extinguished with the garden hose. And I, um, the garden hose that had been two feet away on the other side of the fence the entire time this thing was going on. I did not respond the way I thought I would in a situation like that. Um, and I've thought about that a little bit. Um, I try to forget about it. It's the first time I've ever told that story publicly because it's probably one of the most embarrassing things that's ever happened in my life. But I was like, why, why is it that I responded so poorly that my mother-in-law was trying to lock the fire outside um, and yet Hannah was calm and collected and realized, oh, hey, we have like an endless source of water right here. And guess what? It's retractable too. And I realized it was priorities. Hannah had a priority because she's a good mother and she thought first and foremost about our kids. And there was something about that that instead of me freaking out about myself and how this would look for me, she thought I need to save my kids. And she knew what she needed to do while I was getting concussed. And um, that's the way it is for us. 
that we like to think we're going to respond to the problems and the situations, the storms of our life, the recurring ailments. We, we like to think we're going to respond the right way. We look at it and we say, well, if that were to ever happen, I will do this. When it really gets rough, yeah, Jesus will be front and center in my life. But we live in a way we live for ourselves. And the thing about it is, the truth is, is that our priority today decides our response tomorrow. As much as we might like to think we'll do the right thing, we'll say the right thing, we'll be where we need to be, we'll be calm, cool, and collected. If we're living for ourselves today, when the problems arise tomorrow, we're only going to look to ourselves as the resource. Like I said before, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're dealing with. I, I, I don't know what's going on in your life. But if you're in a place you, you feel like you, that problem is front and center, I, I, all I can tell you is the good news is what Christ is showing us here, it doesn't matter what you're dealing with, what you're going through. He's bigger than it. And I know that there's a lot of us today, we're, we're not currently in that place. And so we need to see today for what it is. That today is a gift that we have time to make him the priority today so that when those storms that we should expect do come up, we will respond looking to him, not taking stock of our situation, not looking at what we can bring to the table, but, but knowing he is bigger. He can handle this. And what's more is he cares enough about us to do it. We make him the priority now so that we can live with him eternally from here on. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of time. God, with how you are patient with us, that you give us time to come around and to understand that you need to be the priority, that these other things that we take stock in, that we look to, that we think matter so much, that in you, because of you, they aren't as important. And that actually we can't even really control those things. And yet so often we spend our entire life trying to do that. And we look to you to even do that. Lord, would you forgive us? And would you allow us the grace that we may, wherever we're at, begin to make you the priority in our life today in a way that we haven't before? Would we not take for granted what it is you are wanting to do for us, but also that we can rejoice that even in the midst of the hardships of our life, the disappointing times, it, our life can still point to you and tell others about the amazing hope and love that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I think Jesus is so insistent on talking to us here about our priorities and what we look to because we give, we don't just give our priorities first word, we, they also get the last word. They set the entire parameter of what we're dealing with and what we're talking about. There's another place in scripture where Jesus says, I'm the one with eternal life. My words are the words of eternal life. And that's what we need to speak first and to speak last about the problems in our life, about the lack of our ability to build up our resources. We need the words of eternal life. Heavenly Father, would we make you the priority in the good times so that in the times of our greatest need, it is your words that would speak true. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy Mother's Day. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.